Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. And I'm Ben Pronk. Why did you start that sentence with and? Hmm. Well, it's, a continu- <laughs> it's a continuance of the introduction. Uh-huh. The yeah, introductory okay. music. Or maybe if people are listening to the episodes back to back. Mm, still here. We haven't gone away. <laughs> Four seasons, we haven't been cancelled. I know, I know. In this cancel culture, we <laughs> perhaps should be cancelled. <laughs> we should self-cancel. But let's not cancel before this particular episode because mm. it's a cracker. Yes, today on the show we have Shannon Polson. Uh, Shannon describes herself as a writer, but oh no, far more than that. She was actually one of the first women to fly the Apache attack helicopter. Do you know what they are? Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Soft spot in my heart for the AH-64 Apache attack helicopter. Well, we'll hear all about that soft spot through this episode. Mm. Um, she actually was born and raised in Alaska and had some... Soft spot in my heart for Alaska as well. <laughs> yes, we've been Timmy there. and I did a, a work gig in Fairbanks, Alaska. And we did an episode on our way out of Alaska. That's right, yeah. Uh, BA from Duke University, interestingly in English literature. Good school, North Carolina. Yep. Shout out to the Tar Heels, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Full disclaimer, may not be their sports team. Uh, With an MBA from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Also a really good school. Very good school. And more recently has done a Master's in Fine Arts. Mm, Which supports her creative writing. And and you cut off a fair bit of her uh, her biography in that she does describe herself as a writer, Mm -hmm. but also a creative, and we're Mm -hmm. going to explore that part, but also a badass, and we're definitely Mm -hmm. going to explore that part um, in terms of the kind of stuff she's done in uniform, before mm. uniform, and after uniform. And really cool, she's climbed the highest mountain in North America. So we'll explore that and what it took to climb Denali. That was what I was referring to with some of the badass stuff. It was badass. Three, yeah. three books, we'll talk about some of those books. Most recently, The Grit Factor. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk about her definition of grit. And I'm also going to ask something I've always wanted to know. What do both pilots do in an Apache? Mm. Who gets to do what? And is there a vanity mirror? Eh, Why don't we find out? Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Giving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. Now, Tim, we have often said we like pilots. <laughs> yeah. And we've interviewed quite a few. Mm-hmm. We've interviewed fast jet pilots. Mm-hmm. We've interviewed Red Bull air racers. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever interviewed a helicopter pilot. No. Nor do I think, well, obviously, logically, if we've never done that, we've never interviewed an attack helicopter pilot. Correct. And we've certainly never interviewed one of the first female attack helicopter pilots in U.S. aviation history. Amazing. And we're going to do that today. We are. 
We're joined by Shannon Huffman Polson. Shannon, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, we are very well. Um, we we're just comparing and contrasting. It's very early here. It's sort of lateish for you over there. Where are we talking to you from? Are you in Washington State, Shannon? I'm in Washington State, pretty close to Canada, up in the mountains. Beautiful. Is it raining? It does that there a lot. You know, it does that. We're actually on the east side of the mountains where it's quite a bit drier. So it's like high desert, but we actually had snow today. So mm. spring isn't quite taking hold yet. <laughs> awesome. Well, Shannon, we're super keen to talk about all things grit, what you're doing now and some of the exciting uh, developments in your life post-military. But it'd be great to start with a bit of background. How did you get to where you are now? A bit about your early childhood and what led you to talk to us today? Yeah, well, it's great to be with you, first of all. So thank you so much. And uh, I know that it's a bit of a stretch, but for some reason, I feel like there is some kind of a kinship between Alaska and Australia, not just for the uh, mm. first letter of them, but <laughs> for the sort of outback nature of it. And I grew up in Alaska. My dad was military and uh, and ended up doing just his four years there, but then loving, loving the area. So we stayed and I grew up in the mountains just outside uh, of Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I was a swimmer. I was a debater. Um, you know all those sorts of activities that you do in high school and Did, and sorry, Shannon, uh, lots of sports. When I, you know, growing up in Australia, swimming is nice and pleasant because it's hot. <laughs> um, how does ha. a swimmer in just outside of Anchorage, Alaska, go? Was it um, pretty brutal getting well, into a, a pool sort of first thing <laughs> in the morning? <laughs> Well, first of all, they're all indoor pools. And Got secondly, it. we're not nearly as good as Australian swimmers. So I think it's <laughs> a combination. <laughs> There's a reason for that. But we might be better skiers. It's possible. Mm, I'd say so. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I left Alaska to go to college in North Carolina, sort of the, the other corner of the North, you know, North America. And uh, and I did ROTC in college. That mm -hmm. was I was an English major, but I was an Army ROTC. So I was in the Army for uh, about a decade after college. And again, as you mentioned before, Army aviation, I was I had the opportunity to be one of the first women to fly the Apache attack helicopter and deployed to three continents and led three different line companies before going through my MBA at the Tuck School and then starting to work in the corporate world as well. And now I spend my time uh, doing both leadership keynote speaking as well as a lot of executive education, both asynchronous or synchronous. And of course, my book is The Grip Factor. My most recent book is The Grip Factor, but I know you'll talk about North of Hope as well. And so um, all of it, I, I do think there are threads of grit and resilience that come through Absolutely. my story. Uh, as, as, as I know they do for you, you as well. Mm. And certainly, um, maybe if we could just start with your entry into the military, there's a, a really strong kinship. My father was a, an aviation reconnaissance pilot, so I sort of grew up oh, in this really? military aviation. He flew Kiowas, which, um, yeah. OH-58s, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, really, uh, it, I guess there's that sort of affinity there from, from my perspective. But maybe for our listeners, uh, and particularly our Australian listeners, could you explain the ROTC program, how that works, and how that led you into the, the, the military? I mean, Duke's obviously a, a really prestigious school, so you, you've got sure. the, the runs on the board there. Um, and then, yeah, if you could explain how the ROTC program works and then into your training as a, as a pilot. 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, ROTC for us and, and Duke is a wonderful school. It's very expensive as well. And mm. m- many of us, um, at least in the States, we certainly haven't got a handle on college costs. I know that's we have uh, not just a unique problem there, but ROTC is one of the ways that people help to pay for college. And really the way that it works is that you sign up for, they, again, they call it the Reserve Officer Training Corps. And you're a cadet essentially mm-hmm. during your college years, but it's not like being at an academy. You, you have a couple of days where you train uh, every week, but it's not all consuming like it would be at a military academy. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, I, for me, it's really, the, it was a better balance. It was really both civilian and military, right? And then as of course you get more senior in college um, and they're, they're helping to pay for college. Not, it wasn't a hundred percent, but I also was part of the national guard for the last two years and the national guard or the reserves for us, of course, is a part-time force that can be activated full-time national guard falls under our state governors um, reserves falls under the federal government. And I drilled with the National Guard for the last two years of college. And then we take our commission as we graduate. And so I was commissioned into Army Aviation as I graduated with a degree in English literature. And uh, and later that year, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama mm-hmm. for my initial entry rotary wing and flight school. And actually, I did train on the OH-58 as well. Awesome. Can you yeah, yeah. talk to us about the selection process and then the training process? I've had glimpses, obviously, our peers who have been pilots. Um, I remember my dad describing flying a helicopter as sort of rubbing your tummy and patting your head at the same time. There's a lot of these sort of coordination type things. Um, how did they screen you? How did you find the, the training? Did it come easy to easily to you? Were you a natural or was it something you really had to work at? Oh, I mean, I think um, nothing, nothing comes easy. <laughs> and certainly I, I was coming from, you know, a liberal arts degree. So I think there are people that come in from with more technical degrees that where it probably is a more natural fit. Um, but certainly you had to perform very well in whatever your preparatory training was. So in ROTC, you had to show a record of extremely high performance in order to be selected for aviation. Um, when I graduated college, women were not allowed to fly in attack aviation. And so uh, and actually, I had a whole very interesting interchange around that. But Congress lifted the combat flight exclusion clause in the spring of 1993 when I graduated. And so uh, by the time I showed up, Apaches had been opened up. And uh, and I was the honor graduate for my initial entry rotary wing training. So that first phase of flight, I did both Hueys and then 58s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because I was an honor graduate, of course, you're you're selected based on your performance as well, or you're matched with your your selection, I guess, or with your preference. And uh, and, and they did a whole, you know, psychological battery. And, and of course, your flight performance is, is, is taken into consideration as well. So I don't know exactly how they put it all together, but they have a lot of data points. And, uh, and ultimately, you're assigned into your final advanced qualification aircraft. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was definitely tough. I mean, in all aircraft, instruments was tough. Uh, I remember learning to fly with the monocle and the Apache. I think things have changed a bit now, but you know, it's just over your right eye, right? And so this eye is looking at a whole flight screen on a little glass piece mm-hmm. of glass. And this eye is a naked eye looking out and around. And uh, that, that, that did not come easily. I don't think for, for very many people, <laughs> so, not for me at least. I'll bet. Can, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just. I've got so many questions. I'm cutting Tim off. But can you talk to us and for our listeners a, a bit about the Apache cockpit setup and the the two sort of pilots, the roles and responsibilities split between front and uh, back? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And and of course, the Apache cockpit has evolved significantly since mm-hmm. I flew it because it's been a while now. Um, but the roles and responsibilities and, and the tandem seating configuration is still the same. So, of course, there's two pilots seated in tandem, sort of like a fighter jet. The front seater, typically in a mission profile, is when that's that was the seat that I flew, was responsible for navigation, communication, and a lot of the weaponry. So I would do a lot of the targeting and... and um, uh, all the hellfire work and that kind of thing. The backseater is, uh, the joke is, is usually the pilot in command. Um, both people have to be rated pilots, mm-hmm. but the one in the back is typically the one that's in charge of the flight. And uh, and you like to say that they keep it out of the trees. But all of the functions can be performed in both the front seat or the back seat. So hellfire missiles front and back, rockets front and back, uh, 30 millimeter front and back, navigation, communication. But the best setup in the front is, is for that, is running the mission. Because at the end of the day, the platoon leader or whoever the commissioned officer is that is in charge of multiple aircraft has to be able to coordinate the movements of multiple aircraft. So, mm. uh, so the backseater's got to keep it out of the trees in the meantime. <laughs> I often think being a pilot would be pretty simple because gen- generally there's just you and an airframe, but now there's two human beings fighting over okay. who's going to control the airframe. Could you talk about how the collaboration, the cooperation, the teamwork uh, occurs intra-aircraft? Yeah, that I mean, that's critical, right? And I think in, in most aircraft where you're seated side by side, there's actually, you can kind of glance over. Mm-hmm. In the Apache, you can't do that because you're in tandem. And there is, there's a little mirror in the front left uh, where you can look, kind of make eye contact, sort of, uh, but often you're flying at night and in a night profile, you can't make eye contact. And so really you're, you're heavily reliant on what you train very hard in, which is a standard cockpit operating procedure. And so there are certain ways that you say things and there are certain ways that you do things and it's extremely prescribed. And it has to be that way because when you're in the middle of everything that goes on in the course of a mission profile, you're not going to be um, having time to try to figure things out. And and certainly the stakes are too high when you're flying as low to the ground as you do with what it is that you have to do. And so that is that standard cockpit operating procedure is critical, especially in a tandem seated configuration, but really for any air crew. And as an ex-special ops guy, a, a sort of infantry-based role, we used to love Apaches. We had a real affinity with um, attack aircraft of all kinds, but there was something about the, the helicopters that were were a little bit more uh, keen to get, get low and intimate um, into the fight than, than maybe some of the, um, the fast jets. Who does the talking to the, the ground call signs in, in that split? That's usually the front seater. So that mm-hmm. would have been me. So like, and, and I had the chance to deploy in, in Bosnia and in Korea, which were quite different than some of the things that people are doing now, which I have enormous respect for. So I'd like to very humbly say that we were in peacekeeping operations. But in Bosnia, we were working in multinational division north. And so, of course, you have, you know, all of the NATO, we have the Australians, of course, mm-hmm. and the Brits and the, the Scots who like to be considered separately from them and the Dutch. <laughs> and, and so you... <laughs> Um, and so every time you would cross over, and there were frequently, when you're crossing over those boundaries, then you're talking to each of those different sets of people on the ground, in addition to the Air Force, con- uh, the um, the controller uh, of all of the air operations as well. So it's certainly been a while. But but that was actually, I loved that. I mean, I yeah. think talking to the people on the ground, because it, it re- really reconnects with our purpose. And yeah. I think as as much of a pain as pilots can be and as much of as cocky as attack pilots can be at the end of the day we had no question that our entire job was to take care of you guys that was that was our whole job that was the whole purpose and if we weren't doing that then nothing else mattered i, I do remember at one stage um in a gunfight we, we called for air support and the first um aircraft we got on station were a pair of french f-18s that were flying in the 
I own a spear. This <laughs> <laughs> this sort of thick French accent. No, we cannot go love. You know, and almost impossible to communicate. And we were sort of strung out a little bit, and and they were not as much support as maybe we'd hoped. And then a pair of American A10s came on with a female flight lead, and just the reassurance of talking in clear English uh, mm. to to this wonderful lady who came in low, hard, and and, and fixed the fight for us. It was a, a like I said, a wonderful relationship we we shared with some of the attack aircraft. That's fabulous. The A10s are awesome. Oh, we, we love the A10s. So They're just cool. fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So we've just described some of the complexity of actually keeping this thing out of the trees, uh, let alone sort of fighting the aircraft, let alone operating weapon systems, let alone sort of commanding another four aircraft, let alone talking to, to people on the ground. All of this sounds like a full-on sort of job. And in the background, you're pioneering as one of the first females in this kind of role. Can you reflect on that? Did was it um, uh, were there difficulties in terms of that assimilation into what is clearly up to that point a, a boys' club? Yeah, I mean there definitely were, and I'm I've been um, I, I was very uncomfortable even talking to that point until somewhat recently, to be completely honest, because you're so as you know you're so much a part of a team and you're so much a part of an organization that whatever is individual is completely subjugated to that. And at the same time, I think these are important things to talk about because we learn and grow and hopefully do it better next time. Mm. So the people that follow uh, have have fewer obstacles and can, again, really it comes down to opening doors so that everybody can contribute their absolute best work, right? And so, so first of all, in the cockpit, no, I did not have any of those issues in the co- uh, with a couple of very small exceptions. But in the cockpit, you're doing your job and mm. you're mission focused and and that's, that's not a, an issue. The issues are out of the cockpit and... Um, and yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, I think it was it was an early integration where they, um, you know, some of the the guys weren't ready for it either, and a lot of them had done their job a certain way for a long time, and mm-hmm. they'd done it really well. And suddenly they were supposed to change and take down all the the dirty pictures around the maps and like you know all those things. Yeah. And um and and there's some resentment that comes with that and some frustration and. At the end of the day, I guess when I when I look back, I say I worked with some of the best people I have ever worked with or will ever know in my entire life when I was in the service, and I worked with some of the worst. It's it's pretty much a bell curve, right? It's a lot of people <laughs> in a big yep. organization, and um, so there were some really unfortunate uh, challenges, and I think there were some incredible opportunities, and uh, and I hope at the end of the day, in balance, that um, that moves all of us forward. Uh, as as we look uh, towards what 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 we want our force to be, which is that everybody has the chance to contribute their best uh, and contribute meaningfully and and make a difference, because that's that's really what we need to be successful. Well said. What would your advice be for young women who are thinking about taking up a career in the Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines? We've we know Holly Barrett really well. Holly's yeah. a champion swimmer. And we've said, what are you going to do after swimming? She said, I'm going to go f- fly fighter jets. Just matter of oh, fact. Um, good for her. Yeah, yeah. What would your advice be for the, anyone that might be a bit reticent about it? Yeah, well, I, a couple of things. The first is um, do sports, right? Because sports are, I mean, there's just every single person that I interviewed in the Grit Factor with only a very few exceptions, as well as people I'm continuing to interview for the Grit Factor podcast. I mean, sports are a big piece of developing confidence for men or women. And I think for women in 
to the extent that our cultures, our respective cultures, I think, actually can hold them back can, and continue to hold them back, sports is a way to really have confidence physically and uh, and then psychologically as well. And I imagine with your backgrounds, you, you have had that experience too. I would also say to read stories of other people who have done that, read The mm-hmm. Grit Factor. I mean, I wrote it for those people mm-hmm. <laughs> who might be considering that and also might be considering a change or facing challenges and not just for women, women or men. Um, but for those those young women that are making those decisions, yeah, absolutely read, read widely, and then reach out to people to um, to to act as either mentors or, or support. It's really about building a team as well, knowing your values, knowing your story, knowing your purpose and your goals, and then building that team that supports your work towards that goals. And And one of that the pieces of being a part of a team like that to whatever that that informal team is, is is also being on other people's teams. And it turns out, I mean, the research is really clear that, and it's also just the right thing to do, right? But it also helps you in your work if you are helping others in their work as well. And so I think there's a purpose component there for sure. Um, but those are the places I would start for, for any young person uh, looking at something that's going to be tough. So as we turn our attention to... Um your books and specifically The Grit Factor, many people would probably be listening to this thinking, Shannon got all of her tenacity from her time in the military. But when you oh. read your bio, that's certainly not the case. And I'm going to, I'm going to read one line um, from your bio that I absolutely love. While home from college after her sophomore year, Paulson became the youngest woman at the time to successfully summit Denali the highest peak in North America. Just like quite matter-of-fact sentence. But knowing Denali, Denali being my dream mountain to climb, can you talk about mountaineering, climbing, and you know the requirement to show a bit of grit whilst you're trudging through the snow, you know, endeavouring yeah, to mean- bag the peak? <laughs> Denali was uh, was a was still I think the hardest like physical thing I've ever done and I've been training for air assault school actually in the military uh, so I've been running with a rucksack you know like doing putting lots of books in my pack and running and doing you know 13 miles or so and um, so I was I was conditioned for it physically um, when we climbed it, it you know typically it's typically from the on the west buttress route it's a two week climb you climb and then uh, you know descend and it, you climb up. It's the, the the expedition style of climbing is climbing. You you cache some things. You come back down. You probably know this, and uh, so it takes a while. And and at the same time, your body is acclimatizing to the high altitude. And we ended up um, getting to. It was an amateur group, so we were actually part of a 60th anniversary Rotary Club climb in, for Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, and had two guides who were amazing with a group called Janae Expeditions. And all three of the other teams, so there are four of us team members, and the other three all dropped out at various places. One of them kind of freaked out on the lower glacier. One of them um, was exhausted and started to get acute mountain sickness at 14,000. And then the last guy held on on this god-awful climb from 14 to 17. He held on up to 17,000, and then he was getting high-altitude cerebral edema. And so they sent him down. And so one of our two guides kept shuttling people down. He's actually the hero of the climb, although he didn't summit that time. <laughs> and uh, and then John Mashad and I had a chance to summit together um, on our second attempt. Um, we ended up getting stuck in a storm for a week at high camp. It was it, it was really hard. I mean, it was. Um, I mean, there's various aspects I could pull out and explain. I, I would say the hardest part of it actually was from 14 to 17 when our final crew member that was going to ultimately decide to go down at 17,000, he was failing from 14 to 17. And so what you do when someone is failing is you take their stuff, right? Like, cause they, he, mm. he couldn't handle it. 
So we got to the top of the head wall. There's a head wall from 14 to 16 that's a, like a 60% incline, and you're you know using Jumars and, and ice axes and we were going excruciatingly slowly. And you know, when you it seems like that should be easier. It was it was unbelievably difficult to go as slowly as we had to go because he was just having that hard of a time. At the top, we redistributed all of his load. So John and I took everything in his pack. And then we had another thousand feet to go up along the ridge. And by the time we got to 17, I was actually, I got hypothermic at 17. It had taken us like 12 hours to do a seven hour day. I mean, it was, it was just, it was really, it was a really difficult thing. And I think it was physical and then it was mental too, because you're physically, your body is starting to kind of shut down around 18,000 feet, right? And you've still got to go up to 20,000 and or 20,300 twice. And uh, uh, I think back on that and my husband actually now wants to climb Denali and I'm like, you, you, you go, go for it, honey. You're I'm, on I'm your own. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I'm not going back up. <laughs> But you you do summit. I love the line that when you've summited a mountain, you've only half finished the climb. But what was the feeling standing uh, at the top of Denali? It was amazing. And you know that most people uh, die or are injured on the descent. Mm. So you know that, right? And we also knew that we were chasing this huge storm system, which had actually pushed us mm. back from our first attempt. Uh, and so it was amazing for like two, <laughs> two minutes of taking a picture, you know, with an old camera that's not digital because this was back in 91. And um, uh, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. It's incredibly beautiful. It's just um, it's the whole world spread out below you. And um, and then you realize you better move on from that awe and get right back to being super focused because, you know, when the storm came in and you can't see things and you're trying to follow the snow wands and, and it's dangerous, actually, there's several places where people fall and, and, and die on the way back from uh, the summit. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense, but it, it's a phenomenal experience. And I, I still enjoy getting out in the mountains and doing some mountaineering, but um, my, my goal now is just to keep up with my two little boys, uh, mm. you know, until they're doing it on their own. And, um, and then I'll enjoy a little bit more tea and hikes. <laughs> <laughs> well, two things that have been incredibly challenging, the flying part and things like mountaineering, those meaningful challenges to really extend you. And on the topic of family, the third real challenge is a tell, which is early in your life, you lost your parents. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, right? You have these various challenges and many of them you think you can't overcome and then you realize that maybe that was that was there to get you ready for something else. And um, I was actually out of the military. I was very close to my dad. He was um, a really important figure and person in my life. And he and um, my stepmother had been married for 16 years and again, still lived in Alaska, so where I had grown up. And they were were pretty keen adventurers in the Arctic and um, and actually all over Alaska. And because my dad's knees were failing, they were kayakers. So they had taken up these these expedition kayaks uh, trips. And they were on the Hula Hula River in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I was 33 years old, and this is 2005. And I remember I talked to them. It was they'd done several of these before. They were really experienced at it. And um, I remember talking to him on the satellite phone on Father's Day, actually, and uh, it was a very quick call because he would, you know, he'd say, it's $2 a minute, so just kind of check in and you know, say happy Father's Day. And um, and then uh, that following week, I had, I was actually visiting my brother in Portland, Oregon, just to the south of us, and I had a text on my cell phone, and uh, which was in my purse so that it wouldn't be in my way, and when I got back in my car to drive home, I pulled out my cell phone and looked at the text, and it was um, it said nine one one, which for us is the emergency mm -hmm. three numbers, and then a nine zero seven 
area code, which is Alaska, uh, and then seven more digits. And I, I called my brother and told him to stop and, and jump in the car and called the number and it went up uh, to the Kaktovik police station, which is northeastern Alaska. And um, the voice on the other end asked if I was Richard and Catherine Huffman's daughter. And I said that I was, and they said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but a bear came into their campsite last night and they were both killed. And those are uh, words, exact words that I will never forget. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, uh, I, you know, I had assumed as I was just hearing those first words, I was like, you know, I'm going to have to go up and help them. They probably need to get to a mm-hmm. hospital. Something happened. They got caught in the off, uh, you know, there's this off ice that covers the rivers in the Arctic. And um, yeah, I mean, that that um, that was that was a pretty tough uh it was a tough call to get and a tough thing to make to live through. And I, I honestly, I didn't think, I remember thinking that I would never survive my dad's death. I know that's a silly thing to say mm-hmm. because if we're lucky, our parents predecease us, right? But I was just yeah. really, I was really close to my dad. And, um, and you, you have to find a way. You have to find a way. Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. segue into this concept of grit. Um, we are super interested in these ideas of resilience. Um, we love Angela Duckworth's work on grit yeah. and she defines it obviously as a, a sub-element of the personality trait of conscientiousness. She talks about passion, meeting, perseverance, these kind of concepts. Can you tell us what grit means to you? I mean, <laughs> I guess anyone who's listened to this podcast up mm. to this point uh, would identify that you've got a ton of it. But but what does it mean to you personally? And what have been those touchstones that have helped you to build it or to develop it or to remember it when times get tough in your life? Yeah, I, and there's so many slices for that. Mm. Um, I what I have defined it as at various points is this dogged determination, right, in the face of difficult circumstances, because I think there is a, a, a time and a place where you just have to put one foot in front of the other. And um, and and when it's mental as well as physical, you know, it's um, and, and emotional and spiritual and all of those things, it, it can it can it will either kill you or you will find a way to do it. Right. And and there is this doggedness or this determination that really is required. And um, when I was doing the research for the grit factor and, you know, the grit factor came about because this young leader reached out and asked if I would mentor her as she began the same process that I had gone through. 
And I immediately said yes, but then I thought, gosh, you know, it's been a while. Like I transitioned through my MBA. I was in the corporate world for a while. So how can I scale, you know, collect information, collect more stories, collect other ideas besides just my own? Because I'm, you know, one one company grade officer <laughs> so uh, who's now gone into corporate. And so I started this process of interviewing leaders in the vanguards of their fields. They happen to be women and they happen to be military. And what that means, of course, is that they've all gone through this double crucible, uh, which is what the Stanford law professor Deborah Rhodes um, has, has termed this requirement to get through these incredibly challenging circumstances, you know, flying in combat or leading logistics across Iraq or whatever it is, while also working in an environment that sometimes actively opposes them, right, mm-hmm. and, and actively resists their presence. And that that is certainly grit. And so I, I did these years of interviews, did the background research as well. And really what I come up with, and, and of course, Angela Duckworth is a science, uh, the scientist behind all this, but really does support that, which is that it's not this unique characteristic that you, you know, take off the shelf for mile 23 of the marathon, although it's helpful there too. Uh, it's really more of the fabric of our characters. And and I came out with really this, this triad, this framework that I now call the grit triad of commit, learn, and launch, which is how the book is organized, of course, because that is easier to remember. Um, but it really aligns to past, present, and future. And I think that's important because you start with owning your past. You start with saying, what are my stories? What is my purpose? And that's a lot of deep internal work. But once you've connected to that, you have the foundation to go forward. And that's into building your team and active listening, the mindset of grit and resilience and all of the exercises that can be done to build it. And then it's looking towards the future with that groundedness in the past, with that deep engagement in the present, with audacity, with authenticity and with adaptability. And um, and that audacity piece is where I end up focusing for a lot of folks and a lot of clients and a lot of keynotes, because at the end of the day, it's about being willing to take risks, mm. to face failure, to face failure, right? Because we we all fail. Like every leader knows it's part of the path to success. And so what do you do when you, when you face that fear or when you face that failure? And you guys did work where you faced fear, right? You you it, you have to start with understanding it's it's part of the normal human condition, mm-hmm. and then you have to turn towards it and fly directly through it. So I think that framework continues to help me understand when things get difficult, uh, and a lot of it is about coming back to the core principles, the foundation, right? What's the story? What's the core purpose and the heart purpose? And when you can come back to that, when things are really challenging, I think that's um, gives gives tremendous uh, power and support, and that's that's where any kind of spiritual connection would reside as well. And for me, that's a big piece too. Mm. Shannon, a topic that I find fascinating when it comes to the idea of resilience is this concept of ego, and whether I'm mm-hmm. defining it correctly, ego or self-efficacy. I think there's a balance; they exist on a continuum. And Tim and I have some some sort of fascinating discussions about what part ego plays, but. Certainly the sure. ability to back yourself, um, the ability, as you use the word audacity, I mean, that requires some level of self-belief. Where do yes. you believe this idea of um, self-efficacy sort of starts and ends and, and the negative side of ego starts and ends? Have, have you got a view on that as it, as it pertains to grit or resilience? That That's a fabulous question. Uh, wow. Um, I mean, it, uh, I think... I'm going to answer it with the cop out of that. It depends, I think. And I think it depends in part because um, there are certain things that you do as as a team or as an organization, thinking back to your backgrounds, not to to presume anything, but or to mine where it's it's um, 
in the military, you're part of a larger group, right? And there can be incredible strength that you draw from that. And just the knowledge of that, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, the definition of purpose and the definition, uh, the mission that's given to you and the way that you work together. Um, and uh, and yet, even within the concept of that, of course, you have to believe that you are, you can and you will contribute meaningfully um, and believe in yourself that you'll do that. Uh, or, or at least believe that, um, that, that, you have to do that. I think it's yeah. one or the other. It's either yeah. believing that you can or believing that you have to, one or the other. And I'm not sure that, I don't think they're the same thing, but um, uh, but that something has to be done or that it must be done helps to, uh, to, to be encouraging as well. So I don't know that I'm answering your question well. It's an excellent question. But at the end of the day, I do think that you have to have a healthy sense of that because... Mm going through challenge of yourself, your ego, however it is you want to define that. Because again, that's going back to the foundations, the understanding the story and purpose you've got to do for yourself before you connect it to that of the organization. Yeah. And and I do think for at least speaking for myself, that was a hard thing for me because I don't know that I had to find that. And the military will certainly give it to you, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they, have, they have an identity that they expect you to adopt and yep. they have a purpose yep. they expect you to adopt. But you also do need to have your own to be sure that you're not compromising values or ideals, right? That um, that make you who you are and are authentic to who you are, and that's part of the authenticity piece too. So I guess I'm I'm coming around to your excellent question to say it's important to have a healthy sense of it, and and it's important to be able to get over yourself too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, mm. it's both of them, so, yeah. And and it's an excellent answer. The uh, one of the things I find fascinating, and particularly working, well, I mean, <laughs> certainly in myself, but working with a lot of uh, female leaders. This concept of imposter syndrome seems to be a common thread with a lot of people, and I include myself in this. And yes. it is a funny balance, isn't it? You want to be authentic. You want to be self-aware. You want to be, you know, you don't want to be hubristic. But sometimes yes. that can lead to, to feeling, oh, my goodness, I'm not good enough for this role. or, or um, And that can be self-defeating in the, the imposter syndrome sense. So you need to back yourself and you need to remember your successes, but not too much. I, I find it a really interesting tension. It's, it's a hard balance, and I, I think it is hard, especially for any minority that is in a, a majority environment. However, you if, you're, if you are the only guy in the room of women, it would be the same thing. But I think it's um, because you've got to promote and establish confidence, right? I'm running a, a nonprofit board right now, and we're finishing a $6.5 million new library in our community, and I'm incredibly proud of the work that the group has done. But you doubt yourself. I mean, I'd never done that before. So I doubted myself at so many places. But you realize my job is to keep the board confident, to keep the donors confident. And so I'm not going to tell, <laughs> I'm not going to share every little thing. I, it's one of those yep. things when people talk about transparency. I think translucency is better than transparency. <laughs> I love it. On, on pieces that have to do with our own feelings. Now, now the finances and all that have to be totally transparent. Mm-hmm. But how you feel, like when you're thinking like, God, I don't know if we can really do this. I'm not going to tell my board that. I'm going to be like, hey, guys, we're doing this. And yep. here's the date and we're going to launch. Because they, they're looking to the leader for that, right? And that's your job as a leader is to provide that vision and that energy. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't have doubts. I mean, that's, uh, that's part of it. What about transferability? What are the things that you've learned from first career in uniform or maybe from the research in the book that you can absolutely apply in your consulting work to corporates or keynotes or advice and mentoring? 
Oh my gosh, it's so much, right? It's so much, and yet it's not everything, for sure. I mean, I think the um, the concept, and, and some of these things, too, that I came to as I was writing The Grip Factor that I work with clients on now with, and, and talk about on keynotes, it's not like I knew it all when I was 21, right? It's now going back and saying, oh gosh, I really messed that up, or <laughs> I wish I'd done that differently, or now I'm coming to understand what this really was about. Um, but I think, uh, I, I mean, really, it, when it breaks out to understanding, and I, I can talk to either the individuals or the organization about, hey, let's go back to key principles, right? Let's go back to what is that story? Let's let's define that story. Let's define those values. Let's connect that then to purpose and core purpose and dissect that a few different ways. That's something that, again, the military just provides. But outside of the military, and this is something when I work with transitioning veterans, I don't know if your experience has been the same, Losing that sense of purpose was certainly a big part of my own experience, and I think a lot of veterans, and um, leads to a lot of problems in in but you know either individually or socially uh, in a on a larger context, and so um, so that's an important piece to, to to come back to and say hey you get to you get to define this now. There's an opportunity, but there's also a responsibility to say hey this is your chance now to define what what's important. How are you going to show up in the world? And um, and so I, I, I bring that up just because a lot of the work I've been doing recently is on a course that I run through the Grit Institute called Paths to Purpose. And that purpose mm. thing, people are desperate. They're, they're yeah. desperate for it right now. And uh, whether it's transitioning veterans or people struggling after COVID or whatever it is, um, you know, everything is being redefined right now politically across the world, right? I mean, I think uh, we're really in a place of uncertainty. And because of that, humans don't like uncertainty. Mm. Uh, that purpose thing and reconnecting to the fundamentals has been especially important. And so um, that's the big place I'm finding people want to focus now. A lot of the studies support it as well. Um, but we could talk about any one of those components of that grit triad because they all, those are the places where things really do apply and uh, taking risks and facing the failure and, and things we had to do as part and parcel of, of wearing a uniform, right? And being in the combat arms. And uh, and that's, you realize at some point that's not everyone's experience and that they want to learn from that, which is wonderful to have a chance to share it, right? And that, that concept of purpose really strikes a chord. Um, you certainly, and it, it's a double-edged sword, I guess, with her first career in the military, that you, you get this thing, you're indoctrinated into this purpose. It becomes part of your identity and that's a wonderful thing for the organization. But it can mean that that once you get spat out the other end, either of your own accord or otherwise, then you you can be rudderless. And certainly, as you say, in in other walks of life, people have never had that sort of level of purpose. What advice have you got in terms of people finding that purpose? Um, We love the Japanese concept of ikigai, you know, that intersection Ah. of what you love and what the world needs, what you can get paid for, what you're good at. You know, I think that's a good start to to start looking at that. Have you got any other sort of advice or or techniques that you work with uh, your clients in terms of determining that purpose? Yeah, uh, for sure. And then the, the paths to purpose, uh, <laughs> the learning journey that I yeah. do, and I just finished it with a tuck school at Dartmouth actually, goes through four different approaches. And I will say the one thing we do is we start with the story piece, and there's multiple iterations of what we call the journey line, looking at your individual journey lines. Um, we do actually look at that westernized guy that you just described and the broader, you know, you know, the old, old ancient Japanese 
principle, which is actually kind of this very, very holistic idea of what's meaningful in your life and, and ensuring that you're, you're balancing those pieces that are meaningful. The one that I really love that I, I talk about in keynotes all the time, because I can't talk about all of, we, we cover too much to sure. cover all of this in, in a keynote, uh, is looking at the five whys. And the, you know, the five whys is this manufacturing technique that Toyota developed to drill down into the root cause of a deficiency, right? And I like to say that, you know, it's, it's fine to start with why, but that doesn't typically go nearly far enough because it tends to stay at the surface level of like, you know, why are you in this job or why are you, you know, working for this company? And, um, and I like to suggest that we drill down to five whys, right? You go five levels down. And, uh, and the example I give um, uh, usually is, is, you know, working in an operations shop, not doing as much flying as I wanted to do in the military in my first, my first job. And you start to drill back on these or drill down on these whys and you get to a value-based concept that is agnostic of the organization and is agnostic of the job at hand. So that's where you have to get, however deep you have to go. And I got down at that point to the level of service, right? So service is a big piece of who I am. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, as I, you know, life gets more complicated as you get older and I have, you know, my, my husband and my two little boys and nonprofit work and my regular work and creative work. And, and so then you start to have to be a little bit more nuanced about it. But I think the five whys is a fantastic way mm -hmm. to drill down and get to the place where you're really identifying values that are key to who you are. Uh, because those are the things that are inviolable. You, you can't allow yourself to violate those things. And, um, and you have to make sure that you're connecting with those things to live the life that I think is the life of contribution that we're all meant to lead. Yeah, love it. We were also lovers of the Eric Erickson theory of identity crisis. We write about it in our book, The Resilient Shield, where role and identity fuse, where there's no daylight between what's written on your business card and who you are as a person there's a problem because yeah. as soon as you lose the business card, you lose everything. Yes. Thoughts, yes. Uh, observations on that from the perspective of an Apache pilot through to the corporate <laughs> world. Is that a truism? Do you have any spins or philosophies that relate to it? Yeah, and, and I won't pretend to be deeply familiar with this, but I do. Um, but no, I think that's a, it's a real danger and it's something that we have to guard against, but it's something for a lot of us who are super type A <laughs> focused and driven. Uh, it's, it's really challenging, right, is to not become what it is that's on your business card. But I would, I would sort of flip it, though, and say if you can develop something that is um, – that is authentically merged, right? So, so maybe it's more. I, I'm just thinking of whether it's, um, uh, it, and this wouldn't be within the likely would not be within the context of another organization, although it might be. But it might be. Maybe your title is something more that's like creative, right? So it's Ben Pronk, creative, or or as opposed to you know the HR manager for, mm, you know, yes. XYZ corporation. When that merges, that's a problem. But if you can kind of flip it and say, what is that role? What should it be that is authentic, that is merged, that is who I am? That's the opportunity. Mm. So yes, I do think it's a danger, but I think there, to flip it, there's an opportunity there as well to say that when we're getting to our purpose, which I think can shift a little throughout our lives as well, right? Um, but at the end of the day, if you can get to your purpose and figure out what you would put on your business card that would be appropriately merged with who you are, that's the goal, right? Mm. Like that's, 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 that's winning. Well, this is a related question. Why are yeah. you volunteering? Why are you doing charity work in building the $6 million library. What's the point of that? 
Because, you know, our, our community has 30% poverty, uh, family poverty um, and child poverty. Uh, there's not access, there's not equal access to things like education and exposure to various things. And when we first moved here and we realized there was a need for public space, and I have the skill set to offer this, you know, and I, I, I will tell you I'm of mixed minds now uh, going forward, but it seemed to me very evident that I knew I could do this thing and mm -hmm. this thing needed to be done. Uh, and that I I believe, which is how I was brought up by my father, and um, it's very, uh, it's both biblical and John F. Kennedy and everyone else is like that too. If you were given a lot, you are expected to contribute a lot. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe we all do have that requirement, both financially and with our energy and with our our hearts. And um, and so this was a way to give back to our community. And we, we moved out here eight years ago because we wanted to get out of the city. And, uh, and you realize there's challenges here and um, we have skills that can be helpful. Mm. And it's, so, it's sense um, of purpose It's been related. an incredibly yeah. heavy lift. Uh, it is, it is. And at the same time, I will say that at the end of this, you know, I'm not looking for my next big project. I'm looking for like, hey, I'm, I should be writing more. I should be spending more time with my kids. I should be, you know, building out the Grit Institute more. So I don't think just because you can do it, you should do it. Mm -hmm. I think you want to find what you're meant to do. And so those are starts to get this this nuanced way of of slicing up these challenges, right? To your earlier point, it, it sounds like you've got service written on your your business card, part mm. of sort of who you are <laughs> as a as your identity. Um, Shannon, yeah. you've mentioned uh, purpose, uh, and, and really that's a fascinating discussion we've had on that as a driving force. You've mentioned your faith, which also I imagine would be a, a really strong driving force. Um, do you use other mental techniques, uh, mantras or self-talk or any of these kind of, uh, I guess, more in-the-moment type techniques uh, as a means of, of keeping going when things do get tough or when you start doubting yourself or the, the wider situation? Uh, you know, um, not specifically, although it's interesting. I'm, I just interviewed uh, two of the first women Army Rangers for the podcast, and they have these very specific techniques, right? They're trained on these very specific techniques to do these things with with, with the mantras and with the um, uh, specific type of self-talk. I, I I mean, my, my default is that I, tr I try to wake up and say a very short prayer, and I try to say a short prayer when I go to sleep. And if I'm completely overwhelmed, then I try to just stop and and re and say a prayer so whether it's connected to i mean however you want to understand you know everyone has a different understanding mm. of this but connecting to something bigger than yourself with gratitude and asking for help are you right i mean there's a there's basically you're stopping you're acknowledging vulnerability um you're you're putting yourself out to be, to be grateful for something and so how however a person does that for me that's a prayer but um for someone else it might be something else similar uh that's that's my go-to what about physical? What do you do to keep physically in shape? <laughs> well, I have two little boys, and uh, and after COVID, <laughs> Might be I enough. would just say it's a goal. <laughs> I'm sure you guys in special ops all have this all figured out. Uh, well, so I, what I wish we did at the beginning of the pandemic, because we and we just did like six months ago, is we just got a Peloton. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the Peloton and the Hydro, um, which are awesome, by the way, and I highly recommend. But we we moved out uh, to the country in part because we live in this place where it's a big mountaineering community and a big Nordic skiing community. So we're quite keen skiers. And so we Nordic ski, backpack, hike, uh, and do a lot of biking. Actually, my knees are pretty shot, so I can't run anymore, but I can bike, I've learned. And I love the biking. So we've already been out and biking this spring, and those are the those are the goals moving forward is to increase the amount of that and decrease the things that require sit 
sitting on one's tail. So, <laughs> I, I was laughing wryly when you described earlier 13 mile rucks with textbooks in the, the back of your pack, and I was wondering how that sort of went on, on knees and joints, and <laughs> I guess we've got our answer. Yeah, well, I, I, you guys have done plenty of that as well, I'm sure. So you, you know the deal. But it's, uh, yeah, running running in boots did not help uh, the long-term knee maintenance. And, and neither does skiing really hard. You know, I, yeah, I actually, yeah. I tore my ACL downhill skiing really hard up at Whistler. And that's just part of it, right? It's part of part of what happens when you get a little bit over 30 and <laughs> yep, yep. things have to happen. No, I know that feeling. Shannon, a question we often ask our guests is, what is your power song? Now, one of my guilty pleasures is watching little aviation videos on YouTube with the rock songs and the Apaches flying low and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> what, what have you got mentally on loop as you're, you know, sort of in that kind of moment? What's your power song? I, I, you're going to laugh. I mean, or you should laugh and you can totally make fun of me. But every time before I go on stage for a keynote, every time, like every single time in my hotel room while I'm getting ready... I turn on really, really loud uh, the Kenny Loggins Danger Zone. Oh, <laughs> awesome. is that true? I mean, is there anything better than Nothing. Top Gun? That like, is it's Top awesome. Gun. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> it's yep. totally Amazing. Top Gun. <laughs> I'm actually surprised we haven't got that. So the Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify, and I'm startled that that is not on there. Could we? Well, I hope you'll be adding it. It will. <laughs> it will be added. Shannon, with your permission, <laughs> can we get like that scene from the – you know the before – Danger Zone, there's that sort of Oh yeah, that's and then awesome. it leads into can we sort of try and <laughs> add that as part of your power song? Yeah, 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 please, please add that in. <laughs> I mean I have no idea what the permissions required are, but I'm sure you can uh, I'm we're sure pretty, it's possible. Pretty fast and loose with that sort of stuff. But um yeah. Shannon, awesome. in terms of other practices, habits, rituals, what else do you do um, in your life for you? For me, you know, you realize if you speak to women who have small children, we don't do this well because uh, and we, we, we build them up and then they go away. And then I hope that we build them up again. <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, I think a lot of it uh, right now is is taking time to um, I mean, there there is a family component, right? Like where we mm-hmm. always have dinner together. We all we have we have things that we do as a family, which defines my time and defines our time. And I think is part of the values that, that we try to live and I try to live. Um, one of my, some of the work after really scrambling, I mean, I was publishing The Grip Factor in the middle of the pandemic, pivoting to virtual, like like a lot of probably you and people that you know. And and it was a like, it was a big scramble. And, and I'm really grateful that it worked out really, really well. But at the end of the day, um, 
the writing definitely suffered and the writing is a big piece of who I am and, and how I show up and want to show up in the world. And so part of the work that I've been doing recently is to set aside these blocks of time. And it's really the time block method of, of yeah. time management, right? Or or even the Pomodoro technique, either way. <laughs> and saying, this is, I'm going to just focus and there's going to be nothing else. There's not going to be nonprofit stuff or Grit Institute stuff or anything else. I'm just going to focus on the writing and not have any other dings or, or, or um, interruptions. Mm. And that has been a really important thing to do. And um, and I hope to get continue to get better at it because uh, there's still, it's hard to say no to a nine-year-old. Uh, but um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like that, that, that is a critical piece of it. And then also setting aside the time for physical activity because that is mm. also a critical piece of just mental fitness, as you know. Um, and uh, and so it's the, really the time blocking, I think, that is, is important. How do people find out more about you, Shannon? So I'm on, on the web uh, on LinkedIn at Shannon H. Polson, also at shannonpolson.com and thegritinstitute.com and a few other places as well. But those are primary, and I'd love to see any of those places. We'll be certain to link all of those in our show notes. We'll be certain to send Holly Barrett a copy of The Grid Factor. Yes. And oh, please. Yes, idea. I'd love to talk to her. Yeah, I, I think she's a pretty pretty special sort of groundbreaking human Incredible. in her own right. And, and yeah, I, I think there'd be a lot of, lot of interesting conversation topics. I think top 10, I top 10 in the history of some of the short course swimming events. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She's, yeah, yeah. She, I guess, benefited from the non-Alaskan <laughs> <laughs> swimming <laughs> environment. <laughs> The year-round access to outdoor swimming. Yeah, that's that, right. that helps. So that you guys helps. have got that one pretty much um, uh, buttoned up. I think swimming is in Australia is uh, pretty Although there is, I mean, Tim and I spent um, uh, a week in Fairbanks, Alaska, or just outside mm-hmm. of Fairbanks, Alaska, with the clients. Yes. And um, my goodness, what a and just an incredible, gorgeous part yeah. of the world. Yeah, amazing. It is pretty pretty wild, right? I mean, it's as, as big and wild as it gets. It's well, and, and like Australia, I think that's where those are some of those connections is that big wild space, and it's it's very special. Certainly more special than Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I spent a year. I loved my time there, but um, an interesting place, Fayetteville. <laughs> I, I agree with you on that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's a wonderful place to to leave it, Shannon. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and it was a fantastic chat. Wonderful to talk to you both. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
now to The Debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your Unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run.